If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to the book of Romans. We have started our venture, our voyage. We are embarking on a verse-by-verse study throughout this amazing epistle, the book of Romans. And this morning, we're in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. So note, I'm starting to pick up the pace a little bit. You know, one, one verse last week. We're moving to three verses this week. The title for the message this morning is The Continuity of the Gospel. The Continuity of the Gospel. We're reading from Romans chapter 1. 1 verses 2 through 4. Here's what Paul writes. He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we do want to declare that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. We're grateful to sing to Christ who has been risen from the dead. And we're thankful to study the Holy Scriptures this morning, which from the Old Testament to the New Testament continue to point to the glorious gospel of Christ. So be with us in our study this morning that you would be exalted in our hearts and that we would grow and change to walk faithfully in obedience and to serve you with all that we are. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, imagine how you would feel if you discovered a 100% cure that was natural and 100% effective and it was a cure that would completely cure all types of cancer. I mean, how much of your time and energy and money would you expend to make this wonder cure available to as many people as possible on planet Earth in your lifetime? How hard would you try to convince others of its truth and its validity and the genuine results of how it defeats an enemy like cancer? Well, in the book of Romans, we see that Paul is on a mission. And no, he doesn't work for UNICEF or the World Health Organization or for the, World, uh, for the Red Cross. He instead is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he wants to distribute the most precious commodity the world has ever received, the gospel. The gospel is a foolproof cure formulated by God to be 100% effective against the terminal disease of sin. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news was to be the driving force in Paul's life. And as he was about to take this magnificent obsession to a completely new level, the apostle sought to explain this truth and enlist help of his brothers and sisters in Rome to broadcast this truth to the entire Roman Empire and then to the entire world. Now last week, as I was introducing the book of Romans, I didn't spend much time on talking to you about the purpose of Romans. And Paul mentioned several purposes for writing the book of Romans. First of all, Remember, he had desired to visit the church of Rome on a handful of occasions, but up to this point, he had been denied. And so he is writing this letter from Corinth on his third missionary journey. And if you look down, you're already there in chapter 1. If you look down at verse 13, we see some of the purposes that Paul begins to explain of why he's writing the letter. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So there in verse 13, according to Paul, one reason that he wrote this letter is just to communicate that he wanted to come to Rome in order to reap a harvest. This means that he desired to see new converts in Rome, both of the Jew and of the Greek. We know that from verse 16. If you look up two verses earlier in verse 11, Paul explained that he wanted to go to Rome, verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So in addition to reaping a harvest, verse 13, here in verse 11, Paul says he wanted to go to Rome to spiritually encourage the saints there through his own spiritual gifts of teaching and preaching and shepherding. There had been a a dedicated and faithful group of believers living in the capital of the Roman Empire who had not yet had the benefit of directly sitting under apostolic preaching or teaching. And so Paul is writing this letter to let them know, if you look down at verse 15, that he's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul's writing the book of Romans, to let them know that he wanted to visit them so that they may be, look at verse 12 now, verse 12, that they may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul longed to to get to know the believers in Rome and to have them get to know him. And he wanted them to know him so that they could pray for him. And he wanted to be refreshed in their company. And he said this toward the end of the letter, You're in chapter 1. Turn over to chapter 15. You see a few more purposes Paul gives of why he wrote this letter. Romans chapter 15, next to the last chapter, verse 30. And here he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So yes, Paul wanted them to be in prayer for him and for his ministry and for his effort. In fact, look at verse 32, the same chapter, Paul wrote this letter, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So it is very likely that Paul wanted to build a relationship that he would be refreshed. There would be a mutual appreciation of one another and he wanted to build this this meaningful relationship with the saints in Rome and he wanted to even utilize their prayers and their joining, if you will, his mission to Spain. It was long placed on God's heart that, that Paul would go to Spain and we believe that after his first Roman imprisonment, he did indeed have the opportunity to journey to Spain where he hoped to minister at some later time. And he says that right here in Romans 15, still in chapter 15, look at verse 28. He says, when I have therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what they have been, what has been collected for I will leave for Spain by way of you. And so he's communicating to them. I want to I wanna use you as a strategic mission post to help us continue to spread the gospel throughout the known world. And so Paul's letter to, to, to Rome, this, 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 this letter to the church of Rome was, among other things, an introduction of himself as an apostle. And he clearly set forth the gospel that he preached and that he taught so that the believers in Rome would, would have complete confidence in his Christ-exalting ministry. And so he wrote this powerful letter to his 
establish them in sound doctrine and to remind them of their duty and their delight in serving King Jesus. And Paul did certainly encourage the church of Rome. One of my favorite verses from Romans would be Romans 15. You're still there. Look at verse 13. It's been a favorite verse for many, many years, maybe for you as well. Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And so we're just seeing from chapter one and chapter 15, these are among some of the main reasons for which Paul wrote this epistle, the book of Romans. He, he wanted to reap a harvest. He wanted to encourage them with gospel truths. He wanted to preach sound doctrine to them as an apostle. He wanted to be refreshed in their company and through their prayers. And he wanted to enlist their involvement in any further missionary work in Spain. And he wanted to be mutually encouraged with one another's faith. And he wanted to remind them of the hope that would fill us with all joy and peace in the power of the Holy Spirit. These are reasons for which Paul wrote the book of Romans. And I've also given you the theme for the book of Romans. I'm sorry I didn't give it on the outline today, but it was there last week. Maybe you remember it. I gave the theme was the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ righteously justifies unrighteous Jews and Gentiles so that by the mercies of God, redeemed saints can serve and worship God by offering their bodies as living sacrifices. That's the theme of the book of Romans. And last week, as we jumped into this epistle, we just simply looked at verse one, where we looked at the man. Look at verse one. Now we're going to, to chapter one, verse one. Paul, that's the man. We studied his testimony, his life before Christ, how he was saved on the road to Damascus, and his life since Christ, going on those three missionary journeys. We also looked last week at not only is there the man, Paul, but there's the mission. He's on the mission. He's been called by God, and he's been appointed as an apostle. And we know that his mission was to bring the message. And that was the end of verse one last week, that his message that he's bringing is he's been set apart for the gospel of God, right? He's been set apart for bringing the good news of God. This is not the good news of man. This is not the good news of the church in the sense of the church in and of itself. This is the good news of God. This is a message of God that he gives to the world of the euangelion, that there's good news coming to us today, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in, this, in our uh, section for this morning, in verses two through four, I'm gonna give you three he headings that will help us see the continuity of this good news, of the gospel from both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, and we'll see that through these three headings for this morning. In verse 2, we'll see that the gospel was a promise. Number 2, we'll see this morning from verse 3 that the gospel is a person. And then number 3 this morning from verse 4, we'll see that the gospel reveals God's power. Let's start with number one for our time this morning. The gospel was a promise. And then your first blank, if you are taking notes, says he promised beforehand. He promised beforehand. So remember, Paul is a apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he, that's a reference to God, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. Now, the gospel here, Paul is simply saying, is not something new. The gospel is not some novel idea. It's not like that 
God had ratings that went down in the Old Testament because somehow in the Old Testament we think a lot more about God's wrath and God's judgment, and so he had low ratings, and so somehow he had to get the ratings up in the New Testament by showing more of his love or more of his grace. That would not be a a correct understanding of what's going on here. The God of the Old Testament is the exact same as the God of the New Testament. And God's character and his attributes and his nature are eternal. God's eternal decrees are unchanging. God's beauty in creation and his power in preservation and his plan of redemption are all part of who God is from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And so in verse 2, Paul is clearly talking about the gospel from verse 1. And Paul was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. The first word of verse 2 is which. It's a relative pronoun referring to the gospel. This means that the gospel was promised beforehand. But before Paul, before the incarnation, before the New Testament, the promise of the gospel started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says that the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. Titus 1, verses 1 through 2, make it abundantly clear. This promise was made beforehand. Paul writes in Titus 1, 2, about the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So the gospel is rooted in eternity past, in the divine decrees of God, that he would send his son to die for sinners like you and me. This is not a new message for the New Testament. This is the same message that was taught, as you see in your next blank, through the prophets. It was taught through the prophets, a reference here of the Old Testament prophets specifically. He promised beforehand through the prophets. Again, the gospel is not a new message. It was promised in the Old Testament. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter. I like how Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person Or time, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It's it's an amazing verse. And there in 1 Peter 1.11, where it says that the spirit of Christ was in these prophets when they were predicting or prophesying about the sufferings of Christ. And also it's indicated at the end of verse 11, the subsequent glories would be the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them. To who? To the Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. In these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. So here we see the Old Testament prophets were preaching the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things of which angels long to look. So again, this passage is saying that the Old Testament prophets indeed prophesied about God's grace through the gospel, that this grace would be uh, brought through them to serve the church, to serve those who would be in Christ, to serve those that God would provide salvation through his son. And so the Old Testament prophets even studied their own writings in order to know more about this promised salvation. And though they believed Though that they, they believed that they were personally saved 
from sin by faith, ultimately through the sacrifice that God would provide in Christ, they could not fully understand all the details of everything that was specifically involved in the life and death of Jesus Christ. I'm simply saying there was still some mystery in the Old Testament, and yet it's fully revealed in the New Testament. But I would say to you this, the Old Testament saints, they understood enough. They understood enough. They also had divine revelation from God that they understood what, it, what needed to happen for them to understand what it meant to truly be saved. And they understood that through the divine revelation that God provided. And they would have been equally convicted over their sin. And they knew that there was a righteous sacrifice all the way from when God killed an animal in the garden. They knew that there would be some type of righteous sacrifice to cover their sin. And they viewed that as the sacrifice official laws came out and the sacrifices came out, they knew that that was all to be a demonstration, a picture, to point to something greater that one day God would send a pure and perfect lamb, a spotless lamb who would die to appease God's wrath against sin. They knew that there would be an anointed one and this anointed one would not only be crucified, but he would be raised from the dead and have a spiritual kingdom that would know no end. This is what the prophets of the Old Testament believed. It's not two different ways of salvation here. They were all looking to Christ. This is what Moses believed as he talked about a prophet coming after him. This is what Samuel believed as he related to David, the Davidic covenant. This is what Elijah and Elisha believed, even as they did miracles. This is what Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel believed. This is what Daniel and Zechariah and Malachi all believed. The worst thing you could ever do would be to divide the Old Testament and the New Testament by saying somehow there must be two different messages with two different goals of preaching two different gospels. There is no such thing as a gospel of law from the Old Testament versus a gospel of grace from the New Testament. There is no such thing as a gospel of obedience from the Old Testament versus a gospel of faith from the New Testament. There is no such thing as a salvation by sacrifices of bulls and goats from the Old Testament versus a salvation based on the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament. No, there is only one gospel. And this gospel message of God says that God is holy. And that you and I are sinners and that we needed someone to die in our place so that we don't have to. And Jesus is that someone. This is what the Old Testament prophets pointed ahead to. And this is what the New Testament apostles point us back to. The gospel is the same message throughout the Old and New Testament. And it's written down in your next blank, the Holy Scriptures. It is written down in the Holy Scriptures. Again, it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The word for scriptures here is the word graphe. It refers to the sacred scriptures, which were literally written down. That's why we believe in the inspiration of scripture. It's God-breathed, but it's also recorded. And it implies that, that these scriptures, that they cannot be changed. The message of the scripture is permanently set. 
We don't add to or take away from holy scriptures. We don't reinterpret or reapply the holy scriptures. The scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are holy. This means that they are perfect. This means that they are inerrant. This means that the scriptures are infallible. And Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, what? to fulfill them. To, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So every inch of God's word is to be valued. Every ounce of scripture is to be appreciated. Every iota and every dot will be fulfilled. There is no higher authority than the word of God. There is no new study. There is no new discovery. There's no new philosophy that will somehow outdate or replace Scripture's supreme authority over all the thoughts and ideas of man. Surely, you remember the two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus the day that Jesus was crucified or uh, even uh, between his crucifixion and right after, excuse, I should say, the day he was resurrected. They were walking to Emmaus and they were discussing all the, the events that had taken place in Jerusalem and they were somewhat confused about uh, wondering what it all meant. And then Jesus showed up and starts walking with them and he explained to them, you remember this from Luke 24, 25 through 27, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, they were slow to really believe and understand what the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary, Jesus said, that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into glory? So is it not correct? The scriptures have already taught us that he would be crucified and he would be glorified because the resurrection had happened and there's all this uh, uh, discussion going on. And then the next verse says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. <coughs> Excuse me, that would have been one of the most incredible conversations to hear from the Lord Jesus himself say, hey, this is all prophesied from old. Let me show you throughout Moses, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, all the things that related to himself. And so Jesus is affirming the entire Old Testament, beginning with Moses and including all the prophets. They were all pointing to Christ. All of the Old Testament prophets pointed to Christ. Salvation is provided in no other name. It has always been about grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is not a Reformation doctrine. That is a doctrine from the Bible beginning in the very beginning of the Scriptures. Now, again, the Reformation helped um, you know, re-emphasize that to a great degree, and we can appreciate that, but that's not a new doctrine. Almost every illustration that Paul uses throughout the book of Romans was taken from the Old Testament. And so we can't just hydroplane over that. As if it's not a big deal that he's connecting here for us in the beginning, in the prologue, if you will, of Romans, that this has all been written down. This is all from the prophets of old. We can't just drive by that. We're talking about taking a look here at the Grand Canyon. You don't just drive by the Grand Canyon. You get out of your car 
And you walk up to the edge and you take a full view into the wonder and the beauty of what God created in the Grand Canyon, which I think was created through the flood. God demonstrated to us the beauty, though, of his creation. And almost everything that Paul talks about is in the Old Testament. And so there is a a, a wealth of theology that is contained here in verse 2, that the gospel, again, was promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's a theology here about the gospel that you and I must be crystal clear in our understanding about. And, and to extend by way of implication what Paul is saying here, he's saying that there is no other way for a Jew to be saved except through this same gospel that was taught by these same Jewish prophets. So there's no other way for a Gentile to be saved except through this same message of the gospel. For that matter, there's no other way for a Muslim to be saved. There's no other way for a Hindu to be saved. There's no other way for a Mormon to be saved. There's no other way for anyone to be saved except through this gospel that came through God's word that was announced and proclaimed in the Old Testament, which is equally announced and proclaimed in the New Testament. And it is this gospel that God promised beforehand to his prophets in the Holy Scripture. The gospel of Christ is woven throughout the Old Testament. Salvation in the gospel would come through Jesus. And so let me just, let me just walk through some prominent places in the Old Testament pointing to Christ and the gospel, and you'll just have to listen, all right? Don't even try to jot down one. Just listen for a second, all right? The gospel would come through one who would be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15, who would be born of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 17.7, who would be born of the seed of Isaac, Genesis 21.12, who would be born of the seed of David, Psalm 132, verse 1, who would be born to a virgin, Isaiah 7:14, whose name would be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7:14, who would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5:2, who would be adored by great persons through his birth, Psalms 72:10, who would be called out of Egypt, Hosea 11:1, who would be preceded by a forerunner, Isaiah 40 verse 3 who would be anointed by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah eleven twenty and 61, 1, who would be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, who would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4, who would begin his ministry in Galilee, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, who would suddenly come into the temple, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, who would be marked by meekness, Isaiah 42, 2, and tenderness, Isaiah 40, 11, who would be without any deceit in his mouth, Isaiah 53, 9, who would be full of zeal for his father, for God, Psalm 69, 9, who would preach with parables, Psalm 78, 2, who would work miracles, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, who would bear reproach, Psalm 22, verse 6, who would be rejected by his own brethren, Psalm 69, verse 8, who would be a stone of stumbling to Jews, Isaiah 8, 14, who would be hated by the Jews, Isaiah 49, verse 7, who would be rejected by the Jewish rulers, Psalm 118, verse 22, who would be betrayed by a friend, 
Psalm 41, verse 9, who would be forsaken by his disciples, Zechariah 13, 7, who would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12, and the money would then be given to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11, 13, who would be engulfed in suffering in his death, Psalm 22, verses 14 through 15. Yet his suffering would be for others, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, who would be patient in his suffering and silent, Isaiah 53, 7, who would be struck on the cheek, Micah 5, verse 1, who would be marred beyond appearance as a man, Isaiah 53, verse 3, who would be spit upon and scourged, Isaiah 50, verse 6, who would be nailed to a cross with nails through his hands and feet, Psalm 22, verse 16, who would be forsaken by God, Psalm 22, verse 1, who would be mocked, Psalm 22, verses 7 through 8, who would be offered all gall and vinegar, Psalm 69, verse 21, who would be left naked with his garments parted and have lots cast for his clothing, Psalm 22, verse 18, who would be numbered with transgressors yet would intercede for, his, uh, for murderers while being put to death, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Not a bone of his body would be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20. He would be pierced in his death, Zechariah 12, 10. He would be buried with the rich man, Isaiah 53, 9. Yet his flesh would not see corruption because he would be raised from the dead before corruption would begin, Psalm 16, verse 10. You think that all happened by coincidence? You think that's just a chance that somehow that all comes together in some freak accident? No, it's all in the Old Testament. And the mathematical probability of all of these prophecies being fulfilled by just one man is next to impossible. In fact, one mathematician said that if you took the state of Texas, it's a beautiful state, it's a great big state, and you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet thick throughout the whole state of Texas, and somebody marked one coin, they put a special mark on one coin that you're supposed to find, and they hit it somewhere out in the great state of Texas, which, by the way, is 801 miles from top to bottom, 773 miles from east to west. And let's say that you got into a helicopter with Pat Hamlin himself, into a helicopter. He flies for the Glendale PD. But you got into a helicopter, and you're flying over the state of Texas, two feet deep, remember? It's one coin you got to find. And you tell the pilot to set you down right here in the spot that you pick. And you reach your hand down into those coins up to your elbow, and you pull out one coin that has that special mark on it. There would be a greater chance that you could pick out that one coin through all those coins throughout the state of Texas than you would find all of these prophecies fulfilled in one man. It would take far more faith to reject all of this than to believe all of this. And most of these prophecies were fulfilled not by his friends, but by his enemies who had the most to lose by their fulfillment. And these prophecies, some of them were even fulfilled before he was born. I mean, you got to be pretty good to fulfill prophecies before you were ever even born. 
And so the point that we're trying to make here is that the Old Testament is rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel. The gospel is nailed down and anchored in its truth. And this gospel is the same gospel that continues into the New Testament. What what are you anchored in this morning? You see, our our gospel message is not some whim, some thought, some some novel idea. It's rooted and grounded in all the truths of Scripture. And I just want to know from you this morning, if you've rejected the gospel, if you don't believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, who alone can save you from your sins, what are you rooted in this morning? Are you rooted in a feeling? Are you rooted in a thought, a a whim? Are you anchored in the ideas of man? Are you anchored in some dream or some desire or some half-cocked, half-baked philosophy which is in clear contradiction with the scripture? That's you this morning. Look no further but unto Christ. Set your mind above where Christ is. Do not be taken captive by deceptive philosophy. Look to Christ. Listen to the prophets from the Old Testament scriptures who promised beforehand that there is a way out of your sin and that there's a way out of your bondage and there's a way out of your hopelessness and it's all through Christ. And so the gospel was a promise that God made and that he kept and fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And that leads us to our second heading this morning. Number two, the gospel is a person. The gospel is a person. There in verse three, your next blank says, Jesus was born. So we're talking about the gospel message concerning his son. If you have an NASB translation, verse three says, concerning his son who was born. So this is the gospel of God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And now in verse three, concerning his son, this verse is emphasizing the divine sonship of Christ. God the Father has a son, and this son was the only begotten of the Father. And that word begotten that we know from our memory verse of John 3.16 does not mean that Jesus had a beginning, but rather the word begotten in John 3.16, it's the word monogenes. It means pertaining to being the only one of its kind within a specific relationship. It means to be unique in kind. In other words, God has many sons and daughters who are adopted into his family, but he has only one monogenes. And that's what this verse is stressing here. This is God's son. This is God's unique son. And the reason that Jesus is unique is because he's fully divine. But but, but wait a second, if Jesus is fully divine, then how could he be born? I mean, how could God become a man? Well, that's the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of the hypostatic union, the term theologians use to describe Jesus as fully God and fully man at the same time. And yet we know this is exactly what the scriptures teach. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As you well know from Christmas, just last month, Luke 2, 11 says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, 
who is Christ the Lord. And so we're learning here again, we're being reminded here in verse three that Jesus was born, but he's fully divine. He possesses all the attributes of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They all possess the same, right? One God and three persons and everything that is in God the Father is in God the Son and also in God the Holy Spirit. And that cannot be said of any created being. That cannot be said of any angel. That cannot be said of any other prophet or priest or king. Jesus is not the junior member of the Trinity. We're not talking about the junior varsity here. No offense. We're talking about the varsity, right? We're talking about there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We understand this from Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so not only was Jesus born, but verse 3 goes on to say, look at the middle of the verse in your next blank, that he was a descendant of David. He's the son of God, but he's also a descendant of David. And in Jesus' humanity, he had an earthly mother. And both Mary, Jesus' natural mother, as well as Joseph, who was not his natural father, but he would have been understood as Jesus' legal father, both Mary and Joseph were both descendants of David. And the New Testament is careful to track just that fact. And this means that Jesus was doubly from the line of David, physically from his own mother and legally from Joseph. This fulfilled clear prophecy about the Davidic covenant that David would have a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. As we read in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 89 Verse three through four, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And so this prophecy of being a son of David is fulfilled in the spiritual kingdom of salvation at the present time. And I believe it will continue to be fulfilled in a physical kingdom when Christ comes and reigns in Jerusalem to set up a millennium for a thousand years. But the point we're making here is that Jesus is born. He was a descendant of David. He sits on the Davidic throne. And we also see at the end of verse three that Jesus was in the flesh. Again, we're talking about Jesus is a person, right? He's in the flesh, the end of verse three, according to the flesh. The second person of the Trinity was born into a human family and shared human life with all other humanity, identifying himself with fallen mankind, and yet he was without sin. Jesus was without a sinful nature. Jesus was impeccable. Another important term that theologians use to describe his character, which means not only did Jesus not want to sin, but Jesus was not able to sin. And so what did he do with the flesh that he was born into? Well, he offered his flesh, his body, that's the reference here, he offers his body as a sacrifice for the sins of the ones whom he would redeem. And we read about this in the famous passage of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus came as the son of God, a descendant of David, and he came to die. He was in the flesh. And Jesus' death mattered because he was fully man. Thus, our sins were imputed to his body on the cross. And then his righteousness was imputed to our account when he justified us by faith. As a man, Jesus became the perfect high priest in order that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. He was one who Hebrews 4.15 says that in every respect he was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus is the Savior and the substance of salvation. And when you are seeking to be a witness for Christ, let me encourage you to learn of these great doctrines of the truth so that you will talk more about Christ. Now, I shared with you last week, I think it's important and helpful for you to share your testimony. I said something to the effect of no one can argue with your testimony, and I agree with that. That's a great conversation starter to tell what God did in your life. And Paul shared his testimony before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. But make sure that when you're sharing your testimony, that you take a long pause and that you begin to elaborate to some degree because our world is uneducated about who Christ really is. And make sure you speak about Christ's life more than you ever speak of your own. You are not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And it's fine to tell others about how you came to Christ, but that is the minor subplot. What is the major storyline is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As Spurgeon would say, a sermon without Christ and a witness without Christ is an awful thing. It is like a day without the sun. It is like the night without the moon. That's the year without the harvest. That's a body without a soul. Spurgeon said that a witness without Christ is an empty well that mocks a thirsty traveler. You have nothing to offer if you don't offer Christ. Spurgeon said that a witness without Christ is like a cloud without rain. It may look promising, but it never brings the refreshment. And so in order For us to be an effective witness for the Lord Jesus, we must speak much about Christ. Even God the Father at the baptism of Christ and on the Mount of Transfiguration said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus in the upper room in John 16, speaking of the Holy Spirit said, he will not speak of himself, he will take the things of mine and reveal them to you. 
So even the Father is pointing to the Son, and the Holy Spirit is pointing to the Son, and in the same way, every true movement of God does not does not point to some other aspect outside of the person and work of Christ, right? Every true movement of God does not have the Holy Spirit as the figurehead. The movement of God does not have the Holy Spirit out leading the parade. That would be a parade marching in the wrong direction and on the wrong path. On the contrary, a true ministry of God and a true movement of God has the Lord Jesus Christ in a place of preeminence. It has Christ in the spotlight and the Holy Spirit is pointing to Christ and revealing him. Now, I'm not meaning to diminish the Holy Spirit either. I said a minute ago, Jesus is not the junior varsity. Well, the Holy Spirit's not middle school. Okay, so we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and throughout our study in the book of Romans, we'll do a great study in the Holy Spirit and in his ministries and in his gifts, and we'll study also much about the Father and his eternal decrees and his attributes, but it's all pointing to Christ, who in Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, So Paul is emphasizing here in verse 3 the person of Christ as fully divine here at the very beginning of the book of Romans. And we'll see Christ throughout this epistle. In fact, the entire Bible is pointing to Christ. It's not just the Gospels. It's the entire Bible that's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament, one preacher said, could be summarized In these few words, the entire Old Testament, summarized into these few words, he is coming. The four Gospels can be summarized with these few words, he is here. The book of Acts could be simply uh, preaching these words, he is Lord. The epistles simply explain him, and the book of Revelation could be summarized in these few words, He is coming again. So the entire Bible is a hymn book. It's all about him, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And if you miss him, then you've missed the big picture. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is of great importance that Christianity is Christ, that Christianity is believing in Christ. It is trusting in Christ. It is following Christ. It is walking with Christ. It is worshiping Christ. It is obeying Christ. It is in serving Christ. The sum and the substance of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, If you have Christ, then you have everything. And if you do not have Jesus, then you have nothing, at least nothing of any spiritual or eternal value. It's all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen that the gospel is a promise God made beforehand. We've seen that the gospel is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse four, I want you to see that the gospel reveals God's power. Verse four, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Your next blank says, God declares Jesus to be the son of God. So Christ was God 
He was uh, God's son from eternity past. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And so this is what we're talking about here, the eternal sonship of Christ that I mentioned earlier. Jesus was always the son. Jesus didn't become the son of God at the incarnation. He was the son of God. And yet in this verse, God declares Jesus to be the son of God. And so let's look at this word declares, which simply means to define or to explain. In fact, the Greek word here is the word horizo, which is where we get our English word horizon from. And so in addition to declaring meaning to define or to explain, to declare pictures the horizon. And when you look out on the horizon, it is as though there is a line that separates the earth from the sky. And this is the line of the horizon. And what Paul is saying here is that there is a line that God has drawn that separates Jesus Christ from all of humanity. There is this line where the entire human race is on one side of the line And the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is on the other side of that line. Jesus has been set apart, and he is the only man on the other side of that line because he is unique, and he is one of a kind, and he is into a category all by himself. And so Jesus has been declared with a line of demarcation set apart, and something has set him apart to distinguish him from every other man who ever lived. And I I believe that this is simply stating here in verse four that God the Father is declaring that. God the Father is saying, Jesus is it. Jesus is my son. Jesus is the monogenes. Jesus is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the one prophesied of old. And as we have already been reminded of at the baptism of Christ, it was God who said, this is my son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is my son. We read the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, close quote. Again, 2 Peter 1, 17. Colossians 1, 13 says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 John 5, 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So what we're seeing here in these first few verses of Romans again is that Paul was called to be an apostle set apart by the gospel of God and this gospel truth was promised beforehand by the prophets and the scriptures and this gospel treasure is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ a descendant of David who according uh, according to the flesh and now we see here verse 4 that Jesus was the son he is God's son declared by God himself What greater witness could you ever have than God declaring that Jesus is the Son? And additionally, this gospel of God concerning his Son, declared by the Father, also here in the middle of verse 4, involves another witness, and we see that to be the witness of the Holy Spirit. You see there in your next blank, the Holy Spirit was involved with power, the middle of verse 4. God declares it, the beginning of the verse, in power according to the Spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness here is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. The spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is also uh, at times referred to as the spirit of truth, the spirit of life, 
as well as a witness, a teacher, and our intercessor. The Holy Spirit is our guide, our comforter, our counselor, our helper, and our advocate. The Holy Spirit is the convictor of sin, the deposit, uh, deposit for the believer, and the revealer of truth. And so part of what's being emphasized here is that you have the witness of God the Father, you have the witness of God the Holy Spirit who is involved in the person and work of Jesus. We understand that there's involvement even in the incarnation where, where that the Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. There's the spirit that, that was involved in Jesus' power and work. As Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's appointed me to preach the good news. And you can read through all of those cross-references, just demonstrate how the Holy Spirit's involved here, 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 again and again and again. It's the power of the Holy Spirit also involved. The verse also mentions that the declaration of Jesus as the Son of God, according to the Holy Spirit, it's done in power. This is talking about death-defying power, grave-robbing power. The word power in the Greek is the word dunamis. It was brought into the English language centuries later as the word dynamite. We're talking about an explosive power and unmatched power, and this display of power is what has drawn the line to set apart God's son because God's son is not mortal, he's immortal. He's not finite, he's infinite. He's not defeated by death, but he's victorious over death through, your last blank, the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. So verse four again is really about the proof of Christ from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, from the resurrection. The verse declares an unmistakable truth that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus was declared in power, that the Holy Spirit is involved and that he died on a cross, we know, but he was resurrected. He died. It was the person of Jesus who bore our sins in his body upon the cross and he shed his blood and so the focus is upon the person of Christ who was crucified. Now, now get this, thousands of men were crucified upon crosses in Jerusalem. Josephus, the well-known first century historian, said there were so many crucifixions that they ran out of trees on which to nail them to. But there was only one who was declared to be the Son of God. There was only one that was not necessarily killed on the cross, but rather gave up his life on the cross. Father, unto your hands I commit my spirit. There was only one who defeated the cross, and it was by the resurrection from the dead. In fact, the word from here at the end of verse 4 means out of. He was literally resurrected out of the dead, and so this is the ultimate apologetic that sets apart, that draws a line through history. This sets apart Jesus Christ unto himself as our Lord. He is our master. He is our deliverer. He is our risen king. And the gospel is the treasure of the church. And it's important that we get the gospel right. It is important that we take our time as we study through this epistle, to understand every facet and every angle and every contour of what the scripture says as it's describing the beauty of Jesus Christ because I believe that our culture has lost that brilliance, has lost that familiarity, has been neglecting those truths. It has been misunderstood and it has been redefined and it's been adapted, which is why we come back to God's word 
and we understand what God says about the Son, what the Son says about himself, what the Holy Spirit says about the Son, and we understand what the Scriptures and the Old Testament prophets say about the Son because it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are here, left on earth, to preach this gospel, to teach this gospel, and to share this gospel because it is the power of God into salvation. This is the cure for sin. This is the good news, and this cure was not discovered. This cure was not invented. This cure was there all along because of the continuity of the gospel from the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The question I have for you is, have you been cured? Have you understood this truth about Christ? Have you been born again and set apart by the good news of the gospel of Christ? And so as you leave this morning, if you're here and you've never bowed the knee to Christ and you've never turned from your sin and turned to him, we'll have a few people standing right here at the last song. We'd love to talk to you. I'd love for you to read through those take-home questions as well and discuss those around the dinner table or with your small group. But we know that the gospel is continuing from the Old to the New Testament, and that is a glorious truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time to come together and study your word. I pray that you would sink the truths of scripture deep into our hearts in a way that we could never forget, that we could never become tired of, that we could never want to wander away from the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel of God declared in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us that it's been true from eternity past and it's been taught through the prophets of old fulfilled as a descendant of David and demonstrated by being resurrected from the dead. Help all these truths just to encourage us and to transform us and to cause us to want to worship you and to serve you more faithfully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.